welcome to the DTB podcast for February 2016, volume 54, number two. My name is David Fizakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, and I'm James Cave. I'm editor-in-chief. This month, our editorial looks at treatment options in COPD, and in particular, drug choices. Over the past few months, we've seen many new drugs, combinations, and inhaler devices introduced. So what's our issue? So what what we're talking about this month is the fact that although there now are an incredible number of um, options in the way of drug um, and devices, actually the number of choices we have in therapeutic options for COPD actually really hasn't changed at all. And most of these um, drugs we have um, have been around for a long time. We know um, their efficacy, and we're aware that actually they they don't have a big impact on disease modification or on extending life. So really, we're just looking at three groups of drugs. Correct. So we've got long-acting beta agonists, uh, inhaled corticosteroids, and long-acting muscarinic antagonists. But what we're seeing over recent years is lots of new entries within certainly the LAMAs and LABA classes. That's right. And we've had lots of sort of Me Too um, long-acting muscarinic antagonists. And very often these have had short uh, trials where they have used proxy markers with improvements in lung function. Um, they haven't looked at uh, any sort of really important disease outcome changes and just simply offering another drug to offer. And of course, the problem with all inhaled treatments is that if you alter the device, you can confuse people. They can end up with having perhaps three inhalers with three different modes of delivery, which can make things very difficult for patients um, to get the drug where it's meant to get to. And despite all these options, we really are only talking about two effects on people's health. That's right. We're looking at making them less breathless and uh, we're looking at perhaps preventing exacerbations. So something about bronchodilation and something about reducing inflammation. Despite the number of drugs, those are the only two outcomes that we can seriously affect by That's drug right. And, and for most patients, and I think this is sometimes forgotten, for most patients, the most important one is their breathlessness. The average uh, patient with COPD has an exacerbation perhaps only once every five years. So I know there's been a lot of concentration on exacerbation as something to be reduced because of the fact it costs um, the health system money to admit a patient with a COPD exacerbation. But actually for the patient in front of you, very often the big issue is their breathlessness and they may be only a very small percentage of your patients that actually have problems with exacerbations. Our concern is that lots more inhaler device, lots more individual drug options, but not actually many more treatment choices for clinicians. Yes, we've just got a lot more deck chairs on the deck, but not necessarily actually improving the sailability of the ship concerned. And why is that? Why suddenly have we got these vast increase in numbers of drugs? Well, I think we know that COPD is a, is a disease that on, on the world stage is rapidly climbing up the um, sort of morbidity scale. So there's a huge uh, market for drugs to treat COPD. And um, one suspects that it's uh, less costly to produce a drug that you know will have a f- place in the management of COPD than it is perhaps to really look at some disease-changing drugs that will alter 
the condition uh, for the for the better. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. And our first main article this month looks at two new lipid regulating drugs, evolocumab and alirocumab. Now, MAB at the end says suggests that they are monoclonal antibodies. Is that right? Yes, these are monoclonal antibodies, and they are pro-protein convertase subtilisin kexin type 9 inhibitors. So the way these work is that they prevent the PCSK9 protein degradating LDL receptors on hepatocytes, and that means that they can continue to clear LDL from the bloodstream. So they basically lower LDL from your blood. So I haven't got used to statins, the word statins. We've now got to get used to PCSK9. Indeed. Well, or perhaps not get used to it, because I think these are only going to have a very, very specialised uh, area. OK, so we, we, you've described what, what they do. Evidence for their use? What populations have they been studied in? So these uh, drugs have been uh, studied in a number of different populations, usually either patients with familial hypercholesterolemia or in patients at high risk of cardiovascular disease with uh, high cholesterols. So it's not a single group of familial, or it's been a range of populations? Correct. I mean, I think that's right. It really has been. In fact, some of the studies have even looked at quite low, moderate low-risk group of patients with perhaps um, 10 years cardiovascular risks of less than less than 10%. And duration of trial has typically, or the endpoint has been studied at? Typically 24 weeks, so about six months. And the endpoint they've measured? So they've looked at LDL reduction, percentage reduction in LDL compared to uh, the baseline. And uh, these drugs certainly lower LDL cholesterol. No doubt about that. And they've compared them with? So they've compared with a number of different outcomes. Uh, very often, obviously, for ethical reasons, uh, I think they've probably found it quite difficult to use placebo-controlled trials in patients. So these patients have often been on a lipid-lowering treatment, and they've compared the addition of these drugs with using azetimibe or with higher doses of statin. Okay. So we've, we've got something about the mixed population. We've got something about the com comparatives near the length of the trial. Have they looked at any morbidity or mortality no this is this is this is always the issue isn't it so the one thing you want to know is you know okay so they they lower the numbers but do they actually do you any good and we just don't know that and overall because i gather there's one meta-analysis that has tried to pull the data that seemed to indicate something around mortality? Yeah, so there, there, you're right. There's one meta-analysis which on the pool data suggested there was a reduction in all-cause mortality, but there was no reduction in cardiovascular mortality. And you're always left wondering, you know, when, when you've done all these studies and have so many endpoints that this may just be a, a complete statistical quirk. Um, it's very difficult to understand how if you've got a drug that you're supposing is lowering cardiovascular risk because of lowering LDL, why it should lower overall mortality and not have an impact on cardiovascular deaths. And from a practical point of view, how are these drugs given? Yeah, so these have got to be given subcutaneously, either fortnightly or each month. And if you, ha if you go for the monthly, it doesn't mean you get away with less injections. They just give you three injections in one go. So in fact, you, you have three separate injections at one time. So you don't even end up with less injections. You actually get more overall. Okay. So overall, they do something. They reduce your LDL cholesterol quite impressively. Harms? 
harms compared to the other drugs um, were pretty equivalent. There's, there's not any major issue with them in that respect. I mean, one of the issues with the drug, the um, design of the trials, was that they would very often test um, subcutaneous uh, injections on patients first and remove those patients who couldn't tolerate it. So one of the difficulties with looking at the studies for adverse events and, and the such is that you can't be sure what proportion of people perhaps in real life would have would struggle with the regular injections. And cost? Cost is enormous. I mean, I think we're talking um, several thousand pounds, aren't we? Per year. So per year. up above £4,000 per year per, yeah. per patient, compared with a statin which is going to do a job at lowering cholesterol pretty effectively of... I think £39 now, is it? Okay, so very expensive, new intervention does something which you would hope it says it does um, but where's it going to fit in yeah so i think these are going to probably be uh, I, I suppose you may have familial hypercholesterolemia you know homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia in patients who really can't tolerate statins they may have a place and i think that's probably where we'll see the therapeutic trials going next and hopefully we'll get some good outcome data which will then allow us to really see whether these drugs have got a therapeutic place or whether they just uh do clever things to your LDL levels. And we're still waiting for final national guidance in any of the home countries on where they sit. That's right. I think NICE is planning to release something in the around Easter time. But overall, it, obviously clever design, clever new drugs, but difficult to quite see where they're going to fit. Definitely at the moment, and certainly no GP should be reaching for their prescription pad for one of these in the near future. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month is an overview of a surgical procedure, a total ankle joint replacement. So what do we look at in this one? So I think this was um, something we felt worth looking at. So we've had arthrodesis, ankle arthrodesis, the fusion of the ankle joint for many, many years. And more recently, there's been the development of ankle replacement surgery. And there's been about 500 ankle replacements undertaken in the UK each year for the last uh, five or so years. And we wanted to really understand what the evidence base behind them was uh, and how it fits into uh, or compares with arthrodesis. So these have been around for a while. Um, we've collected some data from reviews of, of studies and also from joint registries, which different countries have set up to look at the survival of, of joints. What sort of the headline figures in terms of joint survival? So it looks like if you look at joint registration, um, particularly from places like Sweden, about 70% of people who've had ankle joint replacement have still got their ankle joint about 10 years later. So you get about 30% loss over, over that 10 years. And some of the emerging figures about how the successful um, surgical teams have managed this seem to suggest that as with most surgery, the more you do, the better you get. Yes, and I think that's one of the things that clearly comes out of this, um, these studies and these registration is that really units that are doing, uh, surgeons are doing more than 30 in a year then seem to reach a different standard and level of, of um, ability. It's an apparent learning curve, and then you get the much more successful, yeah, exactly. successful joint survival rates. So how good are they? So if you look at uh, some of the studies, they seem to show that you can certainly reduce the pain in the joint. Um, so one study showed that mean pain scores decreased from 7.4 on a 10-point on a scale to 1.6. 
at four to five years post-operatively. So that's a pretty, pretty impressive uh, reduction in pain, and that's that's often the, the most difficult issue. And of course, the the big thing about arthrodesis versus a joint replacement is that if you fuse someone's ankle joint, you will probably make it pain-free, but it, you make it stiff. And there are concerns that subsequent knee and hip issues can occur because of that arthrodesis, where obviously if you do a joint replacement, not only are you managing to reduce the pain, but you're maintaining that person's gait and posture, and that's quite important for other joints. So, But still quite a difficult conversation to steer people down the right route of what's going to be the correct option for them. Absolutely, and I think... You know, we, we had the heady days with hip replacements, uh, knee replacements have made us think a little bit harder about it with only sort of 50 to 60% of people saying they're better after having a knee replacement. And I think angles are at that earlier stage still where we're perhaps still working out what the best options are and in which sort of populations of people as well. Okay, thank you very much. To read these or any of our articles, please visit our website dtb.bmj.com and if you have any comments on DTB content please email dtbeditor at bmj.com Thank you for listening.